It's time! That is right, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for the debut episode of the Black and Blue podcast. I am your host, Matthew McLaughlin, and I am very humbled by this opportunity to interview our very first guest on the show, Mr. Roland Lazenby. Now, if you're not familiar with his work, he has written over four dozen sports books on Johnny Unitas, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, uh, Jordan's Bulls teams in the 90s. He's even written a book on the history of the NBA Finals in around 1993. This man has done, has interviewed almost everyone that there is to interview in the NBA. He's been through almost three decades, three to four decades of NBA basketball and I was very humbled that he was able to come on the show and very humbled that he accepted my request. So a big thanks to him, number one. And number two, I, I want to thank um, all of you who are listening. You could have clicked on anything else, uh, really anything else in the world right now, yet you decided to click on this podcast. And I cannot thank you enough for that opportunity. And uh, hopefully I can make you a fan. And uh, hopefully we can grow together. And... Um, hopefully I can give you sort of a mental vacation from the hustle and bustle of your normal days and the, the COVID-19 pandemic and everything else now that sports are rolling back into normalcy. So thank you again. I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Peace. First of all, I just wanted to say thank you for talking with me and thank me- you for having an interest in my work Matthew of course you know I feel like these two books these two characters they were both so notorious for keeping their personal lives close to the chest so the opportunity to read a 700 page Michael Jordan book and almost 600 page Kobe Bryant book is really interesting because you never really get that much information I feel like personally. Um, so what were some of the difficulties or some of the joys and sorrows of making these books and creating these come together? Because I watched an interview where you pointed out like you have mountains and mountains of, uh, of videos and interviews that you've done over the years. So what was that like bringing all these books together? Well, um, I'm doing it now during the pandemic. I'm writing a book on Magic Johnson. Oh, uh, interesting. And you stack up hundreds of hours of interviews. I, I mean, the amount of articles, um, the video, um, really trying to get inside another person's life. Um, there was always a lot of pressure with these things. And, um, y- you know, you're, you're writing a book about people who are powerful in your industry. And these are biographies. They are independent um, stories. You, you know, these are stories where these powerful, important figures don't control the narrative. You're trying to, you're trying to work for the reader to put all of this together. It's like a, 
a massive uh, puzzle and it's mm -hmm. a living, breathing puzzle. And uh, it's also like this mountain, this weight on your chest, this huge stone. Yeah, it, exactly. And like you said, these are independent standalone books. And when you have these, these other characters and these other cultural icons, because Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant were both to me beyond, those are beyond basketball players. Michael Jordan, especially like he is in most of America, I would assume 95% of the NBA's fan base would consider him like a God. So he's a he, global icon. He really yeah. is. I mean, uh, in Poland in China, I don't care where exactly. you find my book, the Jordan books in 19 languages. And that's, uh, you know, he Congratulations. came along at a time when, well, well they don't care about me. They want to know about my <laughs> You know, and thank you yeah. for saying that. But, you know, American basketball really wasn't much in America, much less globally. Uh, it, it was, it struggled. I mean, franchises failed. and Exactly. So I. Not a I pretty thing. Yeah. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I feel like that's what made that 92 dream team so special was not only they were dominating the Olympics, but also they were bringing like NBA basketball to the forefront of the international stage of just in general international entertainment. Cause you have Michael who's doing these unbelievable highlights and these unbelievable plays. Then you have magic Johnson throwing passes behind his back and he's doing whatever. Then you have Larry bird shooting from the corner from 30 feet out. Sometimes like you have all these characters and all these personas and, did you ever find that in your while you're composing, especially the Jordan book of, because they covered it a little bit in the Last Dance, and I don't want to get too much into the Last Dance because I feel like what was covered in that documentary was covered, and I feel like there's no need to repeat most of that information. Right. So, I mean, uh, did you have, did I you ever find that opinion on that? I everything you say is exactly true. That was I didn't understand how important that was globally. Uh, I was sort of pissed off about the dream team really because it was like watching a 90 to 20 JV basketball <laughs> game. It wasn't, but I'm yeah. using that as the example. Yeah. Uh, mismatches are not a lot of fun. I, I was able to see a lot of great basketball in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate to have, press credentials for Bird's Celtics, for uh, Isaiah Thomas's Pistons. I did projects with both of those teams, with Magic's Lakers, with the Bulls. And to have the press credentials to go in all those places and to really sort of cut my teeth learning to interview and to gain an understanding of that environment uh, was a real special thing for me personally. I'm just some old redneck from Southwest Virginia. <laughs> and uh, My goal was to cover something at the highest level. And when I got into the, I'd been doing college basketball, which was good. I mean, the intensity of a college basketball game is another thing. Oh, yeah. But um to be able to get into the NBA in the 80s and to begin to, you know, and you, those basketball teams 
you know, you're you're trudging around with a with a tape recorder, uh, talking to twelve different corporations, each of these players, and uh, you know, you can float a question. You might be eating it just like leather with with uh, sometimes, you know, if you throw up a flaky question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's all happening at, at pretty real speed before games, after games, at NBA All-Star games. So <clears throat> it was just a fantastic learning environment. I came up with the idea of doing a history of the NBA Finals in, ni- in late 1988, and I was able to sell that project to a publisher and then sell the NBA on making it the official history. I was so, going to, I was going to ask, how did, did the NBA was, were they initially open to that idea? Because they were looking for everything to help them promote and they loved the idea. And, okay. And suddenly um, it was, it was pretty amazing uh, to be able to go around and interview all the great champions and at that time, George Mikan and Jim Pollard from the original Lakers and John Kuhnel, their coach, they were all alive and all the Celtics and all those great teams. And uh, I, yeah, it was I, just a blast going and interviewing them. I can imagine because I feel like across countries, across generations, that period from 80 to like 95 ish, I would say right around there. That's considered like the, the really the golden era because you had quote unquote real basketball with hand checking. You could, the bad boys, the bad boys Pistons were pretty much killing people legally, like on defense. And did you ever, do you ever view today's game and think, you know, like, one of those old heads that are like, oh, yeah, like they would never survive back then because, you know, defensive rules and everything. Um, I think that there are a couple things. I think great players from any era are great players for a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think today's – they changed the rules, and they've made a lot of money doing it. They juiced up the game. They basically eliminated defense – starting in about 2005 and six. And there's been adjustment. Uh, They now have to, but the defensive players had a severe advantage where there's no question that for a time there, uh, you know, Pat Riley was coach of the Lakers. He had to engage the Pistons, which were very physical. And that, that changed his mind and made him a physical coach when he went to the Knicks and then to Miami. And, uh, you know, those were great days. They weren't perfect. But what has happened is the offense, the triangle offense that the Bulls ran so beautifully that people saw in the last dance, you can't run that today. It's basically been taken out of the game by the rules. They've shaved the time off the, um, the timeline. They've taken two seconds. You have to get the ball up faster. And then they've taken the time when you get an offensive rebound, the reset has taken 10 seconds off. And so that has meant, and this is not just my opinion, this is the opinion of the the people who have won many championships with the triangle. 
they've had to abandon it. You cannot run it in today's game. It has effectively been taken away. Um, it's not an option. And my only argu argument about rules today is, well, you know, you've dealt with this. You're now making all the money you want to make. Why not change those two rules back and let, let people have a choice? They shouldn't have to play the game one way. You should, it's funny that, that that 10 seconds on the reset on an offensive rebound and that two seconds on getting the ball across the timeline just made it impossible to run the train. Exactly. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because as a Sixers fan, it is so incredibly frustrating when they get an offensive rebound and either Simmons or Embiid will just try and size up a guy with a couple jab steps and just taking off like six seconds on a 14 second reset. And I know that you were a personal, a close friend with Tex Winter, the legendary assistant coach with the Bulls pretty much during that entire run, who pretty much mentored Phil Jackson into the triangle. He mentored me in a lot of ways. He was really – and I was coaching I, – I was a writer who coached youth basketball anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, I, after working with and watching and learning from Tex, I started running the triangle in AAU ball and had a, a really good team with it. And, a team that went to nationals division one and brought home a trophy in, in 12 year old girls basketball. They ran the triangle. Uh, it was a, it was a much smaller version of it, but uh, all the principles apply. And so I, I don't think, I, I think the triangle won too much and Phil Jackson rubbed too many faces in it. He had an arrogance about him. Uh, and so some of it's resentment. Some of it is the NBA suits wanted to juice up scoring, which has got everybody going crazy about. Exactly. You see, you see Steph Curry taking half court shots or you got guys like that's a common complaint that I've heard from. I have no people. complaints about Steph Curry. What he does is legit. And there's a lot of players that are legit, uh, but I, I just think the option should be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take any great traditional game. If you take checkers and change the rules <laughs> so that there are certain moves you can no longer make, yeah, that that that's just ridiculous. And yet there's not a lot of knowledge that that's even happened. Yeah, and I wanted to connect that a little bit to Kobe because towards the end of even – right after he was done playing, he was criticizing AAU and all these other legit youth organizations for being like, yo, these kids aren't learning the fundamentals. They're not learning the, the real flow of the game, which is what Michael did. And a quote that really stuck with me from the last dance was BJ Armstrong. And he said, Michael just learned how to win. He didn't learn, he didn't learn how to play basketball. He just learned how to win. And they both understood such the flow of the game with Kobe growing up in Italy did they both ever talk to you while you were writing these books about how, how different it is and if they really not so much resented the new game, but resented the idea of the league going towards a direction of just more freedom offensively to go isolation and not necessarily in, 
encouraged triangles and built offensive systems to help players. Like, did I, they ever talk to you about that? I, I didn't understand it at the time. And, and frankly, I don't think any of them did. And I don't even think uh, – Tex Winter told me it was going to dramatically change the game when they, when they came in with the rules interpretations uh, ahead of the 05-06 season. But um, – and uh, Tim Cohn, the great triangle coach who learned everything about the Bulls from a satellite video uh, in the Philippines. And he won 22 championships with the triangle. And, and he can no longer run the triangle in the Philippines because once you change the rules, they change internationally. And it was through my conversations with him and, and sitting in on a seminar that I began to see that I, because I couldn't understand how you could win 22 championships with something. And I think that's sort of indicative of how the opponents of the triangle came to view it. They hated it because yeah. they couldn't beat it. It was um, when you got the triangle up and running and really, now you could fail. It was like a hang gliding. Yeah. <laughs> You, you know, if you get that thing up and you get every, and it takes a while and you got to get everybody into all the reads and it's counterintuitive, but once you get them thinking that way, it really becomes a, you can fly. And I think, but, but that, if you don't, you're going to crash on the rocks. Exactly. And I think most people forget that that was really like when Phil Jackson first took the head coaching job, it wasn't smooth sailing right away. Like it took a couple of years to develop that understanding for the the new offense. And did Tex ever, I shouldn't say confer, but like, did he ever talk to you about like, oh, Michael was being a real headache today with. Oh yeah. You know, he pulled Texas pants down in practice, you know. Really? A wow. A Doug Collins, you know, there would be Texas bare butt hanging out through the jock strap and Doug Collins banned Tex, his top assistant coach from practice. He wouldn't allow him to even comment in practice. And so he, he couldn't even – he had to sit over in a corner. He wasn't allowed – Chuck Collins was uh, uh, a, a really fine coach, but he was just of a different thought. And, um, you know, they didn't bring in the full triangle when Tex came in. The triangle is a two-guard front. And what that means is – at the top of the floor, you have two guards side by side. Yeah. One of them makes a pass, and one of them will cut through and fill the corner. And that creates the first triangle. And so then it, then it becomes a one-guard front, but it comes up the floor as a two-guard front. And there's even a stagger to it just so the triangle is built not only to create floor balance for defense, but it's created so that you, you know, you're able to handle the pressure that other teams are going to put on you. And it, it really was a battle of tempo. Uh, Texas, you know, today they play with pace, but mm -hmm. Texas statement always to me is you can hurry to a butt whipping. In other <laughs> words, if you let tempo get out of control, yeah, no matter how good your players are, you can get your heads stove in a lot of night. And the Bulls got very good at not doing that. They started with the one guard front. They moved to the two guard front. 
and battling against the Pistons, they became that championship level team. The very physical challenge of the Pistons. Yeah, exactly. The Bad Boys Pistons, I feel like, get overlooked frequently. But at the same time, when you bring up the Bad Boys Pistons, it's generally a, mute, a disdain because they're painted as the 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 barbarians knocking on the gates and bringing pure savagery to the league. Whereas I view them as they're just playing physical defense. If you're playing a guy like Michael Jordan, who has already won the slam dunk contest, won all the accolades that he could already have in a rookie year alone, then he's moving into his second or third year and he's already taking flight and he's becoming more advanced and he's developing his game. You have no choice but to take him out of the air. I feel like it's an outgrowth of Philly basketball culture. If you're a Sixers fan, I assume you're from the Philadelphia area. I don't know. That is correct. Well, the bad boys were an outgrowth. Chuck Daly coached at Penn. Jack McCloskey, the GM coached at Penn. They were Penn guys and they just looked at the landscape and figured out how they were going to unseat. And they basically um, created a very physical defensive team, but also a really fine jump-shooting offensive team. You know, they were really – Lane Beer was really the first stretch big Mm -hmm. for the Pistons. And so it's a variation of Philly basketball. And another player that gets overlooked on that team that I personally believe deserves to be higher on – top shooting guard list is Joe Dumars. I believe Joe Dumars does not get enough credit because he was just a quiet guy that even in the 30 for 30, they said like he was, he did everything quiet. I feel like he wasn't the Dwayne Wade jumping on the scorer's table saying, this is my house. He wasn't that guy. And that combined with the bad boys reputation, I think kind of hurt him a little bit. Do you believe that to be the same? I, Joe Dumar is a dear friend of mine, and he was one of those people I, I talk, talked often with. I, his his father drove tanker trucks across Europe for Patton during World War II. His father was a man's man. Yeah. Um, I uh, and, and Joe was just from one of the great families, and one of the one of the best people that one of the smartest, best, um, uh, one of the people with the most integrity to ever walk on an NBA floor. And Jerry West told me, I, I have re- 40 years of recordings, and I was interviewing Jerry West in 1990, right after the Pistons had won the title. And, and I had so much respect for Isaiah. He's just so tough, so undersized. Didn't matter. He would, he he was Iverson in some ways before Iverson. Uh, when, when I started covering Iverson and I followed him as a rookie, and I, you know, he's the kind of guy who would go flying into the lane and dunk over the seven footers. And I, you know, one night in Seattle, uh, I, I was writing about him and I watched him. I mean, he was just fearless. He would levitate. Um, Iverson would and Isaiah was that kind of fearless little guy who would would just go in and and had a, I mean he would take a beating 
uh, challenging the bigs. And so I had a lot of respect, but Jerry West told me in 1990, he said, Isaiah is a great player. Joe Dumars is a greater player. And of course that was based. Isaiah was a good defender, but, but Joe was really the great two-way player. He could have been an incredible, Joe was an incredible offensive player, but he just put that on the shelf to, to play with. And he was a great combo guard and he had size and, you know, he was the guy charged with defending Jordan primarily in the Jordan rules. Obviously, they could flip Dennis on uh, anybody, and they, you know, but and they would do all kinds of things like that. But that that uh, Pistons team had a lot of Philly in it. Exactly, and Isaiah. I I like the parallel you made with Isaiah and Iverson because, to me the stuff that I've heard from my dad and the very brief and vague memories I have of Iverson where he came into the league and pretty much accepted that he was against the league and everything like the normal stereotypical pro would do. Whereas Isaiah, I think wanted to keep that, you know, mini magic Johnson reputation for a while. And then he saw, he's like, all right, this just isn't going to work. And then just kind of flipped that switch and accepted that role. And that really catapulted the Pistons to where they eventually became of being back-to-back champions. Do you ever feel like that almost isn't missing enough in the NBA today where players aren't more willing to be like, to just accept that they're going to go against the grain and just be as competitive as possible, especially when you're writing books about Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, two of the most competitive individuals ever play athletics ever. You know, I don't, do you ever feel that way about today's game? Uh, Allen Iverson had a, a much different narrative. He was the high school football player. I'm from Virginia. I live in Virginia. And he was the high school football player of the year in Virginia and the high school basketball player of the year in Virginia. And uh, there was a bowling alley fight in his oh, year. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I was a police reporter before I got into sports writing. And I used to cover the courts, and nobody went to jail on a first – they sent him to prison as a teenager on a first offense in a really sketchy circumstances. And, of course, he, he went from there to Georgetown and played for John Thompson, but um, who was really uh, Red Auerbach of the Celtics in a different package. He and Red were very close, John Thompson was. He had played for the Celtics. That was his life. And, and so people could were very pleased to have the Celtics do that. It's <laughs> a white basketball culture. But when John did it at Georgetown as a black culture, that, that set off bells and whistles and alarms and upset him. Of course, nobody liked Red either. Yeah. Red Auerbach was despised because he would blow the cigar smoke. But Red <laughs> Auerbach loved Allen Iverson. He, I used to talk to Red about him, and Allen was just trying to play his game. He was fearless. He didn't. Um, he was a he was a culture hero right off the bat, <laughs> and he uh, he enjoyed that celebrity. I remember talking to him after a game, and he'd be in there fixing that bandana on his head and getting it just right. And he really had a, uh, he was sort of the league's 
first hip hop player. And there was even that uh that moment where his he's on the bench and his mother's braiding his hair behind him on the bench. I mean, he he produced so many memories that I I personally love him as a Philly icon that you can't I feel like you can't help but love him because I feel like like you said that that incident in the bowling alley for those who don't know there was a supposed racial incident in a bowling alley there was video but it was grainy to it was too, almost too grainy to confirm that he was involved in the fight yeah. so and certainly not the perpetrator of it yeah uh, and uh, they use an anti-lynching law to convict him, anti-mob violence. They really reached out into left field. The, the whole thing was um, was not right. But beside all that, uh, I, you know, when I write these biographies or when I write about players, I'm really sort of searching out their competitive integrity. What obviously linked Michael and Kobe wasn't a very organic thing. Uh, it's not, you know, people often accuse Kobe of copying this or that. And, you know, he was a teen, an unknown teenager when Adidas let it be known they were going to make him the next Jordan. Exactly, and, and that set off the whole sneaker wars and everything in the and 90s. They paid him a ton of money to turn pro. It, excuse me, and... But beside all that, Kobe already had all of his organic competitive nature. He was, uh, now you tell a 15-year-old kid he's the next Jordan, he's going to shave his head and start walking the talk. And I mean, walking the walk and talking the talk. And he, he caught a lot of grief for that. But he was the organic Kobe. And he and, and Michael had tremendous competitive integrity. They weren't alone in that. They also had tremendous talent. But uh, Allen had his own competitive integrity. Um, he had a long, when he came in the league, he had to go against that very veteran Bulls team. And, you know, yeah, there was the crossover and people, that was a moment in a game. What really happened in that game, uh, I was there, I watched all and wrote about it. The Sixers were thoroughly embarrassed all the time by the Bulls. It was a process that always goes on in basketball. Young guys come in the league and they encounter these things that you can't conquer easily. But Allen had his own competitive integrity. He still does. You know, he's a, he, I, he's a, a good and kind human being. I, you know, he's worthy of his hero status. Yeah. And, the interesting, what I find the key difference between Michael and Kobe was that Michael just, I feel this way, this is just my opinion, is that he played so much basketball that he figured out, and he did study a lot of film, but he just figured out where players were going to go before they even know where they were going. Whereas Kobe was just watching film all, like, for – countless hours and limitless hours where he was like okay these are the these are the behaviors this is where i know he's going to do this when he's doing that where if, for example if he's dribbling left i know he's going to pull up on the elbow or something like that and i feel like well, that's a key difference yeah there's quite a backstory to that though um i spent a lot of time with kobe when he was a young guy in the league he was miserable he didn't think the lakers were organized 
He was uh, very frustrated. You know, they were, they were based around Shaq, but there was no real structure to things. And he, he was as miserable a kid as I've seen. And I was rebounding free throws for him. The, late, the Lakers were getting killed by uh, the Spurs in the 99 playoffs. And we were in the forum after practice. I was rebounding free throws for him. And he told me that he always dreamed that he would get to play for Tex Winter. And I said, well, Tex Winter's my buddy. And so I um, said, I'll get him to call you. And of course, Tex was still an assistant coach at the Bulls then. This was 99, Phil had left, but Tex was still working for the Bulls. And so it really raised eyebrows when the assistant coach of one team called a young star of another. I can't even imagine if that happened today. But by by that next fall, Tex had been hired with Phil by the Lakers, and he had become Kobe's mentor. And Kobe wanted the triangle in one sense. He wanted that structure. He, he craved that. And ultimately, that's what Jordan found in it. But Tex always had some things he pointed out because he worked closely. He coached Jordan longer than anyone. And he was Kobe's guy until he suffered a stroke until Tex suffered a stroke in 2009. And he, he, you know, Kobe and Phil went to war with each other and Tex was always Kobe's defender against Phil in those battles. Tex was the only guy in the Lakers organization who could stand up to Phil. Jackson, who had such an imposing, intimidating personality. And Tex said, you know, um, Tex had a point guard at Kansas State where Tex ran the triangle. Mm -hmm. Tex had great teams at Kansas State. And he had this point guard, a guy named Bill Guthridge. And Bill Guthridge then became Tex's assistant coach for about eight years. And where did Bill Guthridge go after that? <laughs> University of North Carolina. And, of course. And the University of North Carolina didn't run the triangle, but they ran such an amazingly tight offensive system that the pro basketball scouts were furious. They couldn't judge that Carolina talent because the system hit it all. It hit Jordan's talent. What is the line about, you know, Dean Smith was the only guy to hold Jordan under 20 points a game. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, somebody is, you know, this is the age where everybody looks up everything. But someone's come up with a statistic that Jordan only dumped eight times at Carolina. Something Ooh. ridiculous. It was more than eight, but that was the point. But Tex said that Jordan learned to play – in a, an offensive system for three years at North Carolina. It required tremendous personal sacrifice. When Jordan got to the NBA, it was like he'd been let out of jail. People didn't realize what he was. And he blew it up in the Olympics, but he really blew it up in the NBA uh, where he had coaches that were eager just to see him do what he could do. And by the time Tex came around to coaching Jordan, Jordan was not in the mood for any structured offense. 
So that took another thing. But he had that memory, and he was able to adjust, and that's how they built those great teams. Uh, Anthony Ticci, who played at Wake Forest against Jordan, said, nobody gives Jordan the credit for having the character to play for Dean Smith for three seasons in that offense. Contrasting that text said, Kobe came as a 17-year-old kid right out of a Philadelphia high school that he totally and completely dominated. And he went into the NBA when it was all men. These were all very proud Lakers veterans. They didn't like his ambition. They didn't like that big Adidas contract. It's like Rick Fox told me. He was like some snotty-nosed kid who would cut line in caf <laughs> at the cafeteria at school, you know, and all the seniors are pissed off at him. And so Kobe had to learn, and it was harder for him to – but he he was willing. It just – it just was difficult because Tech said both of them were like high-wire acts every night. You didn't know. You could have all the structured offense. You could do all this stuff, but they had so much talent. You never knew when they were going to go off on their own, say to hell with the offense, and attack. Especially, yeah, especially and in those. Part of their genius, whether they, when they, when they stayed within the offense and when they got out of it and attacked. I can't, yeah, I can't even imagine that. Uh, Tex winner's position because especially in 80, 88, 89, when they're on the rise and they're starting to win and make the playoffs, whereas Tex is trying to get Michael to at least see the value in the triangle system, whereas Doug Collins is just like, all right, like he said in the 89 finals, all right, get the ball, Jordan, and everyone else get the F out the way. Like, So I can't even imagine Tex having to deal with that. Did he ever – I guess, express how hard it was and how difficult that was to maintain that or at least try and keep pursuing and keep uh, pretty much annoying Michael to be like, listen, this I'm trusting, trust me, like this offense is going to work if you just take the time to learn the reads and just work well, with me Texas, a little bit. Texas, 78 years old, was the kind of guy who would jump off the sidelines right in front of Shaq running down the floor to try to take a charge. Texas, <laughs> he was a maniac and fearless. And he challenged Jordan. Tex was never going to have – you know, he would fuss at Jordan about his chest passes. And nobody worked harder at chest passes. You can't think of NBA players – working on chess passes for 15 minutes to start practice. Come on. Yeah. And, and Tex was a maniac about all those fundamentals. <laughs> Michael and Scotty would do that stuff. They would do that work. But yeah. Tex was such a perfectionist. Michael was his own perfectionist. And Tex was constantly at him about this or that. And all that did, Jerry Krause monumentally pissed off Michael with his ways but Tex, mm -hmm. that's why michael would mess with Tex, pulling his pants down in practice or, but the point was and and Tex was eternally grateful to phil jackson phil phil was the salesman he was the guy who worked and worked and formed that different relationship the two guys that turned michael loose Kevin Lockery was an old-style pro player, 
Philly guy. No, uh, I'm sorry, New York guy. But Kevin had been a, a really good NBA player himself, and he was uh, right there in the early days, immediately coaching Michael. And he said, get out of the way, turn him loose. Michael loved Kevin Locker. And, of course, Krause came in, uh, Reinsdorf bought the team. They didn't want Kevin Locker anywhere near him. Mm-hmm. But then they ended up with Doug Collins. And Doug Collins was the same kind of guy. He wanted Michael to explore his talent. And Michael did that. All those years where they didn't win were important. That's when Michael understood everything about himself as a player. And Michael told me personally, he didn't know he could do all that crap. It surprised <laughs> even him. But the, but the point in this is Phil formed that relationship with Michael, but he was calm. Phil was calm on the sidelines. And, and Dean Smith was calm on the sidelines. And Doug Collins, for all of his many abilities as a player, he was the number one overall pick of your Sixers. Yeah, legendary Sixers player. He had injuries in his career, but he was a hell of a player. And But Doug, he's, he's ready to fight on the sidelines. He's totally into the game with the players. And uh, the Bulls for a while needed that. But Michael liked Phil Jackson's calm. And the relationship they formed um, allowed the Bulls to go to that style of offense, the triangle, that, quote, system offense. And um, Tex had a different relationship with Kobe, but that was the core of that. It was a battle. It was always a battle. It took very talented people to even allow the triangle to work. I don't know if it could work today because I don't know if you had those kinds of people who would have the power to do that, who could be persuasive. Um, the league today is important because it's, it's a league driven by player power. And I think that's important because owners have abused their power. Who says players shouldn't go ahead and have it. And I, yeah. I think there are, you know, LeBron James is an excellent example of that. He's a, a leader. He, he, he really is an impressive guy. He uh, is impressive in how he uses the immense power he has. But um, I I just think that if a coach and a player want to run that system, the rules shouldn't stop them from running it because you can play with pace anytime you want to. You, you know, teams back in the day played with pace. And they, they are now, especially with, all, they have to. That's what uh, yeah, said. with not even just personally for me, uh, watching the restart games last night, not even just the uh, um, just the offensive rules. I think it's the hiatus in general where now they're getting back into games. They've only had two weeks of training camp, so now they're like, all right, let's push and push and push because frankly, we don't know if our offensive system is going to work, and we don't know how fresh or in rhythm our guys are. So it's like, all right, let's just go out and run. And I think, I think it's beautiful. I, you know, I, I, I'm not the biggest fan of today's game, but what I've seen so far, basketball's never perfect. It's a game played at pace. But these guys are all like Zen warrior monks. They have, they have to, right now, they have to be down there in the bubble. Yeah, exactly. And that's not an easy thing. But um, 
there's something in the spirit of these games that's really important. And there's something about the price they're paying to play like this. I know it's an odd season. It's the schedule. It's the format they have to have. But God love them. Those and guys, think- they're back and they're playing and they're paying a price to do it. And I'll watch them every night. And I, that's a beautiful segue because I wanted to get your thoughts on the current Orlando bubble that's happening right now with the NBA and Major League Soccer. You have National Hockey League splitting up the two conferences into Edmonton and Toronto. You have the MLB that's still traveling even despite the recent outbreaks with the Miami Marlins. The Phillies have had a couple of new cases, but they announced today that there will be that there weren't any new COVID cases. And you have the NFL that's trying to model a little bit what Major League Baseball is doing right now, but they're not exactly sure. Training camps are still going on as scheduled. Do you think that – I guess what are your thoughts on the bubble structure of not having fans? Like, should we just take the sports now and just savor every moment instead of just complaining like, oh, it's not the same and – Let's just enjoy that sports are back and at least some type of normalcy. Well, we are in the age of the pandemic, and it, it, the only thing it reminds me of is World War II. And I wasn't alive then, but I've interviewed all the people in football and basketball and baseball. And uh, their pandemic was bombs dropping all over the world and every yeah. kind of thing, 50 million people getting killed. And, uh, and the beautiful cultures of Europe wrecked and destroyed and uh, the worst side and the best side of human beings. And sports was um, was changed forever. The leagues were canceled uh, Top athletes went off to war. Some of them were paraded around like show ponies. Others of them died in combat. Um, And the game changed. Suddenly, black players were invited in to the games in basketball in the the old National Basketball League before the NBA. Uh, uh, You know, things come out of dire circumstances. Innovation and, and important growth. It's, it's not ideal. It's you're responding to an emergency. And we don't have bombs falling on our head, but we have terror in our hearts. It, exactly. And so it's an unseen enemy. It, it may not kill a player, but it'll kill a player's mother, as it has with Carl Anthony Towns. I was going to it, say. It, it'll prayer, kill. Yeah. Yeah, prayers. We – Send our condolences. It, it, it'll, it'll kill people, and this is our moment. And these guys are, um, you know, they're not working in hospitals, but they are not acting like arrogant, spoiled people, millionaires. Yeah, uh, hundred, you know, multi-millionaires. They are. Um, they're worthy of our time, and. Um, you know, what we're going through is going to change the game. I don't know how. We're finding that out. There are going to be really good things to come out of it. There are going to be some things that aren't good. That That's life. But uh, I think all you can ask for at a time when maybe some people question leadership in this country 
at least in what they do, I, I don't think you can question the leadership of NBA players. I mean, I think they are making their way. Now, admittedly, it's an elite environment, but mm-hmm. they are making great sacrifice. So I, uh, my hat is off to them. I, uh, and I'm my, very pleased. Personally, my hat is off to Adam Silver, who I believe is always ahead of the curve, and I believe he's a great commissioner for the NBA. He's done. He has, he has, he has filled that role beautifully. And I believe he, he did such a great job of being optimistic, but choosing his words carefully of like, we want to make sure our players are safe, healthy, that it's the right environment, that they're not bringing that home to their families. And I got to give props to him and props to the NBA owners too, because this COVID may bring a new playoff format to the mix. Now we have playing tournaments. We have exhibition games to see if, uh, there's going to be a change in that eight seed in the Western Conference. More teams are getting involved, so more stars are going to be showcased. Like normally, you wouldn't see a Devin Booker on the Suns in the playoffs. Well, you know, the league was kicking around ways to change before this all came up. Yeah. Radical ways to change. And so this sort of took the agenda away from them and set it in another direction. What the NBA has done so far, I mean, we can only go a day at a time with this stuff. Obviously, I have very different feelings about major college football and where you got amateur athletes. I, I, I you know, I understand it's important to them. I, I, I just am not sure. I, I have different feelings about grown men um, who are paid well being able to make clear decisions. And uh, the NBA has shown remarkable discipline. There have been other problems in other, other sports situations, i.e. the Marlins shutting down for the season. And yeah. this could easily happen. I mean, the whole thing could be a house of cards. But every day that we have it is a testament to them. And mm-hmm. so I'm not – my attitude is – Thank you for every day you're able to pull it off. And I hope they get through the whole season. If it doesn't work, if we get three weeks into it and it collapses, my hat's still off. Yeah, it's, it's, still, it's still basketball. And I agree with you that the NFL and college football are two completely different discussions because as great as I would love to see Penn State football my freshman year at Penn State, like – it's not worth the risk to risk um, the health and safety of students who have to go home to their parents and their other older siblings. They may be living with like grandparents or older relatives or extended families. And a and lot just, of people don't have choices there. They're, they're, we're yeah. all in some regard with our families, like those sad folks in India sleeping in trees to avoid, exactly to try to social distance. And, uh, we're obviously not that, but there are many families they they don't have the resources of a beach home or multiple residences where people can go, and so the pressure put on people, uh, I don't know. It's it's very tough. You, you know, you have people who've worked very hard for their moment in college sports. I just played a year of college football as a walk on, but. 
you know, that was a wonderful window into all that it is. And um, th this is difficult. I mean, there, there are truly difficult things, but it's just like those folks in London who had to sleep in the subways with all the bombs falling. Yeah. We, we can't pretend that it's not there. Now, when I was young, would I have listened to anything? I was an idiot. <laughs> and I'm just honest. I was a nut. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, extremely reckless, uh, foolish. And so I would be one of those kids that I wouldn't be out there licking that subway pole like that kid did. But, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't listen. And I understand you. I, I'm not trying to make this, but the bombs are falling. They may not, we, we may not be sleeping in the subway, essentially, uh, thinking we're going to die any minute. But we are in very, a very serious time. Yeah, and, and it's, so, just, it's just not worth everything. It's not worth the risk. If it takes a season to just to keep everyone at bay, then okay, I am more than willing to accept that as a fan. And I feel terrible for the players, especially who are going to be seniors this upcoming fall who may miss out on their senior season, which was their swan song. But I think when you look at it, it's it's just not worth to make profits make millions of profits that the, the athletes in the first place are not even getting a touch of or not even seeing that the colleges are getting off of TV deals. Uh, uh, the programs, the NCAA has a whole uh, making money off of merchandise from colleges to hats, jerseys, whatever. I just don't think it's worth the risk. And I think this could bring hopefully some change as to athlete compensation in some ways. Because I personally believe that the players that are putting their bodies on the lives, their bodies on the line, excuse me, every single play deserve at least some type of compensation when the NCAA is making billions and billions of dollars every single game and every single Saturday. Yeah, the, the NCAA is the deceptive thing there. They are raking it in and they are using it. Uh, they're raking it in on amateur talent who are basically playing for the cost of tuition. Um, the schools themselves always are, there are a select group of schools that are cash cows <clears throat> who make money with their athletic departments, but mm -hmm. the vast majority of schools at every level are hemorrhaging big time. Yeah. I mean, we've already, we've already seen Ivy league schools cut programs. We've seen. They have uh, no choice. Yeah. And, and it's and really sad. Yeah. But that's just the first layer of cutting. Mm -hmm. These schools are like restaurants. They are big, fancy restaurants. Uh, and they really don't have an ability to operate in a physical way. You know, it's like they all got to do curbside. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the, you know, these have, these schools have huge overhead and aging faculty. I taught college for 21 years. I know the terrain. And uh, the biggest challenge outside of public health, and it's not just sports, it's every phase, is the economic challenge that is going to cause severe damage, just like a war. 
just mm -hmm. like Europe was bombed out and needed the Marshall Plan afterward to rebuild, we are going to really need some leadership because this pandemic is creating severe economic harm. Exactly. All kinds and, of ways. Exactly. And I think sports are a huge outlet for that, which is why I wanted to get your thoughts on how you think COVID will affect these salary caps because we've already seen Pat Mahomes become a half a billionaire already, which still blows my mind, even though it happened a month ago or so. He's already, he's basically a billionaire now that he's already owning part of the Royals. You have um, Chris Jones, defensive tackle for the tech, uh, Chiefs, excuse me, getting 80, 64 million guaranteed. And even in baseball, Mookie Betts for the Dodgers is getting $365 million guaranteed. And then you have the Lakers who are trying to sign Anthony Davis, but they're not sure if they're going to have the money. Do you see that, like, sport – do you think sports uh, sports clubs or associations and organizations will be okay after all this? Or do you think that there, we could see a really different salary structure coming out of this? I don't see – much that's now there's certain things apple seems to be uh immune mm -hmm. to the uh, environment apple just keeps charging on um there are certain stocks uh you know and the stock market is weird because the whole system is set up you can't make any money saving if you're a retiree you've basically got to find a way to be in the stock market a little bit because that's the only way to get a return to make any money. And they have <laughs> everything geared towards stoking that stock market. And it's like, it's like basketball in a sense. They've got basketball geared where everything has to go fast. It has to play one way. Yeah. There's no, there's no variation to it. That's my complaint. Well, we have our whole system aimed at forcing all this money into the stock market. And so it's been booming even as we had these serious questions. And, um, you know, Mahomes is the apple of pro athletes. Yeah. You're gonna invest, I mean, you're going to invest in that guy. Uh, you know, he may be immune to it all. He, he probably could be a one-man league. I don't <laughs> I, But I'm just saying. Um, yeah. Everybody else has to operate by the real world. You know, it's just perfect timing for Mahomes. Certain people, yeah. Jordan had perfect timing. He, uh, and that's what he told me when I sat down with him in 2008, looking back at his life. He told me timing's everything. And I mean, even the last dance, the pandemic, everybody's cowering in their homes. There's no sports. And mm -hmm. so here we are with yep. these hours of, of Jordan documentary. That's just, uh, do, do you know what that did for his holdings, for his brand? Uh, I mean, he just, it was like all the casinos, all of the slot machines malfunctioned at once and just started <laughs> spinning out. I mean, yeah. there's mountains of money. And I, I was just, just watching what happened with my book, I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm a minor character in all this, but all of Jordan's holdings, uh, <coughs> it, 
it's, I was talking with a dear friend today. And of course, a lot of the bulls are really pissed off by the last dance. I have seen some of those. Have you had a chance to talk to any of them about I, I just, their frustrations I, I with get, it? I just get it secondhand. There's a lot of anger. Okay. But that's television, you know, they're, the yeah. people doing things, they're, they're pursuing, for example, Ron Harper, who was so important to those teams, he's got a speech impediment. They didn't even talk to the guy, I don't get. I guess they interviewed him, but they didn't use much of anything. I couldn't find him there. And Ron Harper, I mean, he was their ball pressure. I mean, his story was great. There's so many of the things like that. But um, the, the point is there are certain people who are going to have that perfect timing no matter what. Um, all of these other structures are going to have to adjust and they're going to have to change. And I – Personally, I think that's what Dak Prescott is going through with the Cowboys because that his contract situation, that was a huge issue was the years because I believe he wanted five years or four years and the Cowboys wanted five because Dak wants four to be able to see what the salary cap's like come that fifth year, whereas the Cowboys just want to lock him up long term. Yeah, it's always hard to know when to listen to your agent and when to listen to your gut. Mm-hmm. And when to get a gauge on your true value. Now, for a guy like Mahomes, that's easy. I mean, he has uh, he has generational talent. Dak Prescott is a really good quarterback who had a great, surprising rookie season, and and he's had his moments. But I mean, that's a challenging job, uh, and he's in a He's in a high-pressure situation. And he's done – you know, I'm not – this is not about knocking him. But I'm just saying, you know, it's a high-stakes gamble. You can go from being that guy to to dropping two ranks in that business. Mm -hmm. And um, owners know that. You know, you've got to have a sense on how you're investing, what you're going to tie up because – I mean, these are not infinite resources. These are finite. Yeah, and Dak is a – I got to give props to him as a Cowboys quarterback and an Eagles fan. He's been a very good quarterback for them. Mahomes is just such a head of the, head of the curve, cream of the crop, head and shoulders above everyone else, which is why I think this NFL Top 100 playlist is very dumb because it's, it's the players, and I think – they aren't necessarily putting their full, I want to say full thought, but I think it's very easy to have for one player, such as Lamar Jackson, who got number one, to have a, an excellent breakout season and for players to easily be like, okay, Lamar's number one. And it really bothers me as an Eagles fan because I feel like Carson Wentz gets very underappreciated and very under – I think he gets too much blame and not enough credit with the Eagles – especially when the year that they had where they were pulling guys basically off the tailgates for the pregame to go play receiver. And you're, you're having Greg Ward, all props to Greg Ward. I believe he should have made the opening roster uh, week one because he's an underrated talent, but he was their number one option. And Carson Wentz somehow took that team to the playoffs only for a dirty hit by Jadavion Clowney to ruin that. And then people are just going to call him injury prone. And that just basically wipes off his, 
his reputation as a great quarterback. Well, that's the pressure of Philadelphia, which has every city has its own, you know, and Philadelphia gets a, a Super Bowl championship. They haven't had that since what, 1960 when they won the NFL title. Uh, with Last team to beat Lombardi in the playoffs. The, the great two-way player, Chuck Bednarik. Concrete Charlie. Linebacker. But, uh, but with it, they get this insol- unsolvable mystery of the quarterbacks. Exactly. I, the <laughs> so amount of times. The amount of times. It comes out of it. Yeah, Nothing everyone's trying. Comes up. My yeah. son is a maniacal Eagles fan, so I I I watch him suffer. It's it's so like I feel like the Northeast teams in general. It's it's a lot. We're very similar. Where it's like you you win one week, you have the best week of your life. You lose the next week, and then it's like okay, I might as well just quit my job and just crawl into a hole because. The amount of times on Christmas Eve where I've had to argue with relatives that Carson Wentz is a better quarterback than Nick Foles is unheard of. And it gets very frustrating because I believe Carson Wentz just happened to get bad luck. And he was looking like that MVP towards the end of the season, especially against the Redskins and towards the end of the year. He just didn't have the weapons with him. The only, the only good thing about such an argument is that it's not Paul. That is very true. That is a very good point. I, I long for the days when the worst thing we can have at a family holiday is a disagreement over quarterbacks. Always. There, there are families at each other's throats out there, right? It, it gets worse. Yeah. Like I, in my family, sports arguments almost get worse than the politics arguments sometimes. Like it's so. But sports arguments now, it is people will want to crawl in a hole, but they are not an existential threat. Political oh, yeah. are an ex- about an existential threat. One but way, anyway. However you look at it. it would, yeah. Like, oh, but anyway. To kill the other, no matter what. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but, but um, you know, um, thank goodness we have some distraction again. Exactly. And uh, just to wrap up this interview, I just want to do a little segment called Off the Dome, where it's just like five like lightning round questions, just right. to uh, first first thing that comes to your head. Uh, which Kobe was greater, eight or 24? Um, 24 was, I, I didn't like the whole Black Mamba thing. Really? I understand why he did it. Mm-hmm. I know why he did it. Um, I, I I don't have a, a big dislike over it. I just, uh, but 24 was better. He was more mature. Kobe was a guy who didn't have control of his life, despite everything he did. And it really cost him a, from a shot of being the greatest player of all time. If he had gone to college like he wanted to do, his parents needed the money. Uh, but if he had gone to college, he uh, Tex thought he maybe had a chance, like Jordan had gone. And he didn't have to come into the NBA and and suffer what he suffered. Big whoop because he made it work anyway. And he was <laughs> an all-time great, and he's with God now. Uh, yeah, instead uh, of six he, champions. 
instead of six, got, he got five. He learned. Um, he he was he was a remarkable man, and he got better with age, and better and better. But he was a pure spirit. Yeah. Um, twenty five, so, twenty four. I'm sorry, it's a long. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, no, but I think that that's what Kobe was. Kobe suffered some turmoil during his career, both on and on and off the court. And a relative brought that up to me when he recently, when he first uh, passed away, was like, "Okay, Kobe was an icon in basketball, but." They asked me, my relative asked me, like, how do you evaluate the turmoil that comes with that as their legacy? Because it's still part of them. Well, Kobe and- destroyed his career and his life. Let's be clear. The, the thing about it is he had the will to recover from that. And I think that maybe is his greatest accomplishment. And <clears throat> it wasn't a perfect recovery. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he was a bastard much of the way. But yeah, and- he had the will. He was not going to take no for an answer. He was not going to take no. He would have destroyed 99 and 9 tenths percent of the population. But even even more infinite, even greater odds than that. But he had the sheer will and drive, not just to win those late championships, but to rebuild his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it... I, I was awed by that. So, uh, next question. Do you have a favorite Laker of all time? My old man is an old two-handed set shooter from the hills of southern West Virginia. He loved Jerry West. I really became a basketball writer. My old man died. I was about 28. He died real hard. He's a good guy. Um. He loved Jerry West. And so I wrote that Jerry West biography, you know, and the idea was to take it and put it on his grave. But I remember he died in 81, February of 81. I remember the first few times I sat down to interview Jerry West. And I I would think this often in my basketball life because I had no plans to be a basketball writer uh, of any kind. And uh, I would think, man, that was what kept me close to my old man. Playing pickup basketball for years and writing about basketball and coaching it. But when I would do those interviews with guys like West, I would think, man, my old man would be loving this right now. And so um, the West book, obviously the Jordan book is ridiculous. Ridiculous, and and the last dance has made Jordan like Jesus. I was originally going to call my book Black Jesus, but of course that's Earl the Pearl's nickname. But you know the PR people for the Bulls called Jordan Jesus because he was so worshipped. Tim Howell, the Bulls PR director, would look at his staff and say, "Have you seen Jesus today?" <laughs> and so, uh, but he's really Jesus now with this last dance stuff. And it's all over the globe. The, the, the people in Poland are translating every book I've ever done. It's ridiculous what they're going through. Because I've written some good books, and now I've had to write a lot of text for picture books. But, um, but, but 
and so some of them aren't really all <laughs> all that special. So um, Jordan it just has that effect on people, and it's really done nothing but magnify. Yeah, and like we said earlier, Kobe and Jordan, they were just guys that just really played their cards tight to the chest, as tight as you could. And a lot of people, that encourages them to – want to find out more and be like, give us more, give us more. We want more from you, especially Jordan, who was getting endorsements out the wazoo and just getting all types of deals. He's on commercials with Spike Lee. He's doing all these things. And it's like, okay, that's great and everything, but we want more of you as a person. We want to figure out more about your personal life. Yeah. My old man, was set to go to college on a basketball scholarship during the depression. And his father dropped dead that summer. So Jeez. instead of going to college, he went to work on the loading docks at a supply company because he had younger brothers and sisters. And so there was a lot of emotion tied up and he, he really had bombs of another sort dropped on him three times in his life. And so the Jerry West book was, very anything related to him was very emotional for me so uh who's your pick for mvp right now for nba mvp to clarify i it's hard i i i i, I always have misgivings about writers um making fine-tuning decisions on the very best people playing a game. Uh, but I, I probably think, and I, my, my selection process is a little broader based, but I, I probably would have to go with LeBron. Uh, I, I, his leadership in so many ways, but I, I, you know, you, Kawhi or the Greek freak, I, you know, I, it, it's, it's always a mysterious thing anyway, but I, yeah. I think what LeBron's doing has been pretty special. Yeah. Year 17, 35 years old. He can still get up. Like he's, he's 28. Like it's for me, I, I agree because I personally think that Giannis has a better team built around him to kick out, drive and kick out for the three. And he's still developing that three-point shot. Roster. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, the philosophy is more consistent right now. The Lakers are finding some balance and consistency. But uh, LeBron is obviously uh, – they wouldn't be having anything in L.A. without <laughs> Exactly. So do you have any uh, sleeper teams that you're excited about to hopefully contend for the Larry O'Brien this year? Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think you can count out the Clippers. Um, it, it's going to take some time. You got to look at, it's a new thing. Mm -hmm. It's not what it was. These are, you know, these are, they're semblances of the teams that played the season, but it's a new thing. And so I got to get a little more look at it before I can really say, Oh, that's, I really like what's going on there. I have to wait and see. 
I got you. And as I, a six, I really look at the Lakers and the Clippers, and you know, I wasn't disappointed. That game last night was one of the games that I'll probably most remember down the road when I'm telling my kids, and especially um, like Kawhi wasn't necessarily like the whole both teams are not the whole league is not going to be in as what it was and they're not going to be as gelling and even Kawhi and Paul George were picking up four fouls by the end of the third going into the fourth quarter yeah you're going to have those things yeah but the energy and the intent was there to really uh you know I just the circumstances uh you know but you're right. I mean, it, 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 it did have that early feel. And so it's going to take a while. And you don't yeah. know who's going to get COVID or get injured. So uh, exactly. I, I, I'm, not a, I, I'm not a person that I, – I think there's a reason I write books. <laughs> Instead of, you know, really being a daily guy grinding it out with the team. I have great respect for those beat writers. I'm not sure it could have ever been one. <laughs> uh, so lastly, do you think anyone such as my Sixers could upset the Bucks going in into the East and hopefully, you know, make a run at the finals and surprise the Bucks or the Celtics or some of those top Eastern conference teams? Well, you know, there was nothing we saw in the Sixers during the season that made us think that. They lost pieces that really sort of subtracted from them. Uh, but it's a new season. Mm -hmm. And uh, people change. You know, we're all sitting at home with time to think about everything. Yeah. And, um, I mean, they have had to sacrifice a lot to play these games as people. Even the people covering them have had to go into that protocol so um i think that's one of the best things about it uh, yeah what, i think it's going to change in all of this who's going to um who's going to come up with something who's going to change the narrative on what's going on how much tape did they watch during this you know did they exactly uh, and those questions linger with the Sixers pretty much this whole year because that Christmas Day game against the Bucks lit them up for 130 points or whatever it was. And then you have these other games down on the road where they're losing to the Hawks, the Magic, these teams that they should be beating based on roster. But now I think it'll benefit these lower-seeded teams because they don't have to travel. They're not going into a home court disadvantage they can just focus on, okay, game plan, roster to roster. This is just a pickup game and practice. So we're going to see how hard each team goes. Well, they lost on an unbelievable rim. Yeah. I mean, probably one of the most dramatic moments in NBA history. Now, there have been some. And, yeah. you know, Things like that can really uh, mess with a, a team, mm -hmm. and so we're gonna. We haven't seen where um, where that flipped on the switch for them, and it can either flip off the switch, 
Uh, you know, I, probably a key is Joel Embiid. Mm-hmm. Always. Uh, and how he's going to mature as a competitor. Um, those are questions yet to be answered. I, I don't like to shortchange some, somebody by saying, oh, that guy's never going to do yeah. it. We don't know. He, uh, you know, he's got to turn around the narrative. And hopefully he does. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for well, interviewing me. I, I have to tell you, you're, uh, I, I in, get interviewed by a lot of people. I taught um, interviewing at Virginia Tech for years uh, as media, a media, I, I taught media writing, but it was primarily interviewing. And you're going into your freshman year. Correct. <clears throat> you are a, uh, you, you are a mature professional interviewer. You, and that begins number one of the being incredibly well prepared. And you are that you are into this subject. I've encountered some impressive uh, young people uh, first as a college teacher for 21 years, but also in doing a lot of media work. Uh, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. man. And that was my interview with Mr. Roland Lazenby. Thank you guys very much for listening. I hope you guys had some good things to take away from this and had an overall positive experience because that's what I want this podcast to be about is positivity. Um, there's enough going on in the world right now where it's easy to be very negative, but you know, hopefully in this space, myself and my guest can be comfortable and, you know, bring some good energy to the world and to you guys who are listening. Um, if anyone is interested in being a co-host with me, I'm open to inquiries. Just DM the podcast Instagram page, which is at black and blue pod, um, all lowercase. Uh, yeah, just send me your contact information if you're interested. Um, and thank you guys again for listening to this. This was really fun and hopefully I can do another episode soon. Uh, I'll probably announce on the Instagram or other social media pages when we do get the next guest. So thank you guys again. And I hope you guys have a great week ahead of you. Stay strong, love yours, um, and always stay positive. Thanks. Peace.